0: Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll start in verse 12 tonight. So feel free to open up to that section of scripture. Um, I'm going to share a couple of quotes with you as we begin tonight that kind of pertain to some of the things that we're speaking about. J.I. Packer says this, you could speak of Jesus's rising as the most hopeful thing that has ever happened, and you would be right. David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The Christian is a man who can be certain about the ultimate, even when he is most uncertain about the immediate. So, I, uh, for those of you that don't know, I'm, I'm married. I have a, a beautiful wife. Her name is Christy. And uh, together we have two children. Uh, Briley is our oldest, and she's 20 months now. And uh, our youngest was just born not too long ago, and she's four months now. Nope. Four months and three days, three days. She will be four months old. Got it. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I love having kids. If you have kids around that age, or if you've had kids around that age, you understand that, um, something funny kind of goes around when, when your kid gets to be like 20 months, they start just soaking up everything, you know, like they start learning new phrases and, and learning new things. And they're curious about everything. My daughter's favorite phrase right now is, what is that? And she just repeats it all the time. Like I'll carry her around and everywhere we go, doesn't matter what it is. Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? And so I explain to her whatever it is that she's pointing at. Well, that's a lady. Well, that's a man. Well, that's a TV. And she'll ask it again. Why is that? So every once in a while I like to throw a curveball. I'm like, well, a television set is a bunch of computer chips that they've put together and fused together, and then that projects an image onto the screen with which we watch. It's downloaded from satellites or cables that run through the ground and then pop up into our television set. And then she looks at me and says, why is that? (laughs) She always wins. But in my office, I've got, uh, I've got this guy right here, and this is, uh, this is an all-time classic game. How many of you ever played the game Jenga before? You ever played Jenga? Man, if you've never played Jenga with your family, get together with them and play some Jenga. Family game nights are awesome. I love this game. This game is, uh, it's a game of strategy, and it's a game of, uh, skill, uh, partially a game of steady hands, of which I don't really have right now, so forgive me. And, uh, you know, when you're playing Jenga, You kind of go forward and you're like, okay, well, i got to figure out which blocks are going to be easiest to remove and which ones are going to be harder to remove and try and remove as many of the easiest ones so that the other person or the other people I'm playing against have to remove the harder ones and then they'll lose and I'll win because that's what life is about, winning. That's not a spiritual truth, by the way. Um, But Jenga... As I was looking at this, I I keep this in my office and it's on a shelf. And every time my daughter Briley sees this thing, she absolutely goes nuts. She doesn't actually like to play the game. She more likes to dump them out of the container and just throw them everywhere. And that's her idea of Jenga. But Jenga, man, as I was looking at this, I was thinking about it. I was like, hmm, there's a lot of similarities between Jenga and our faith, huh? I mean, when you think about it, in our modern church culture... We go through this process of playing Jenga when it comes to Scripture and our faith a lot of times. You see, a lot of us look at our, our faith and we look at Scripture and we see it as, an, as a whole or as its entirety. And then we start looking at it and we're like, okay, yeah, I get that. But, you know, that piece right there, I just don't really understand it, you know? And I don't, I don't really get what it means or what it says, so I'm just going to kind of set that right there and... um. You know, this, this, well, that piece can stay. Uh, this piece right here, this one's just not convenient for what I'm going through. And and so I'm going to kind of set that aside. And, and this piece over here, well, this one, It just doesn't fit with our culture. You know, it's it's just not contextually there for me. So I'm going to set this apart. And we start going through scripture and we start going through our faith and we start picking and choosing the various things that we feel are applicable or we feel make sense or are practical to what we want to see out of our savior or out of our God or out of our belief system. We take out the parts that don't make sense to us, are impractical are impractical or don't fit within the cultural norms that we so strictly try to adhere to. And as each piece is taken, what we end up doing is removing more and more of the hope of reaching our end goal. See, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to scripture, when it comes to our faith, it must remain whole in order to carry the hope that we have in Christ. And this is exactly where we find the Corinthian church at this particular juncture when Paul is writing to them. See, the problem in Corinth was they had grown up in a culture. They had been raised and developed in a culture where they had learned so many different things as far as superstitions and spirituality and religion. You might even say they had a lot of influences surrounding them, various Oprah's and and Deepak Chopra's influencing their life and telling them, you know, it's more of about spirituality than it is about a particular person or God. And it's more about combining everything that is good into one common thing so that you're a good person. And they started to listen to these things and inside their faith and the gospel that was presented to them, they began to poke holes into the things that they felt didn't really need to apply. Paul, recognizing this, drafted a letter immediately and wrote to them about reminding them of the gospel that they first heard. The gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached to them, presented to them, that they claimed and held to, and then continued to proclaim to other people. Paul saw an immediate problem that if you're going to proclaim this gospel, you better not poke holes in it first. It has to be presented in its entirety Because when you lose a part of it. You might as well wipe away all of it. To be honest with you. When we look at the Corinthian church. And we identify it as that game of Django. With the holes in it. It's really not that different from our culture now is it? See a lot of us like to look at the Bible. And look at the people that we study in the groups. In the early churches and say. "Ah, Silly Corinthians. If only they knew. And yet. We do the same thing. We come into church and we listen to the messages or we go to the Bible studies or we read through our scripture. And yet when we come across something that we feel doesn't fit within the model that we want to have or the framework that we want to use, we just kind of poke it out. We get rid of it. We remove it. We ignore it. We set it aside. We call it impractical. That can't happen. What we forget is that Christianity is exceptionally practical. Although it contains the supernatural, it follows logic. Our faith is not a blind leap of faith in concepts, it's trust in a trustworthy person. The fill in the blank in front of you is this As impossible as it sounds, Christ has raised and will return. As impossible as it sounds, Christ has raised and will return. So open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 12. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. So if you notice a distinct difference between mine and the Bible's in front of you, separate translations. But here we go. Verse 12 says this. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We're of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For For as in Adam all die. So in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn Christ. The first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the father, after he destroys all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet for the last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made the subject Or will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to shame you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we give you tonight. Jesus, we present to you our minds and our hearts God, that when we leave here, we would not just be the same, but we would be changed internally, God, and that that change would flow out from us and impact the world in which you have placed us in. Jesus, we ask that you would speak through this scripture, Father, that you would speak through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would your words ring true? Jesus, would you move powerfully in here this evening? We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here we go. Let's dive into it. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Let's pause there for a second. Before we go any further, let me encourage you. If uh, you have a pen or a pencil, you're going to want that too. Okay. if you don't have one, don't worry. The seats in front of you do have one. If you're sitting in the front row, sorry, um, maybe next to you or behind you, someone can hand you one. But you're going to want a pen because we're going to have you underline some things and and write some things down as we go through this evening. I believe the Bible is sacred and powerful, but I believe that it was not meant to be untouched or, or not dove into in this way. I believe that we are supposed to just absorb scripture, that we're supposed to dive into it and digest it as much as possible. And I love writing notes in the margin and I highly encourage other people to do so as well. So if you haven't ever written in your Bible, let me be the one to give you permission. Write it up, my friend. It's worth it. All right, here we go. So verse 12, once again, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So what's the big deal? The Corinthians were acknowledging that Christ has raised from the dead. They were fine with that. They were perfectly okay walking around and saying, yeah, I acknowledge Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Where the problem came in is that Paul then continued to say, and because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, so too you will share in that resurrection and also be raised in the dead along with him. That really freaked them out for some reason. And the reason behind that is this, you see, the Corinthian church growing up around such pagan culture as they did, were very used to and culturally infused with this idea of dualism. Dualism teaches two main things. The first thing is this. It says that the body is essentially evil or corrupt. Your human form, your physical body is completely corrupt. The second thing it teaches is this. The spirit or the soul is something that is worthwhile, everlasting and intrinsically good. So death then becomes a freeing event in the mind of a Corinthian. To them, the idea of death meant that the body was shed like the skin of a snake. Their soul was finally free, unshackled and unprisoned by the body and able to go from whence it came and do what it was meant to do. So for Paul to come in and begin to teach that, hey... When Christ died and was raised from the dead, that gave you the opportunity to then be raised from the dead along with him. To them, they thought, well, why would I want that? I don't like my body. I don't want to keep my body. Why would I need my body? I would much rather leave it here. And to be honest with you, I imagine there's a good portion of us in this room who are like, you know what? My body's not all that great either. I don't think that's such a bad plan. And for most of us, it's like, you know what? I could stand to lose a few pounds, and if it means that my soul goes immediately to God and I can leave this shell here, I'm all for it. Sign me up. And that's where they were at. But that isn't the truth, now is it? You see, Paul was teaching the truth. That is that Christ is raised from the dead, and we too share in that resurrection. But if Jesus Christ raised from the dead, but there's no actual resurrection of the dead then that in turn means that Christ was not actually raised from the dead. Paul's pointing out a very significant problem here. He's presenting again the truth of the gospel and the hope that it provides because of Christ's resurrection. Hear this. In order to truly have power, the gospel must remain intact in its entirety. In order to truly have power, the gospel must remain intact. We have to keep it completely together. Here's what I mean. It is the love of God as proclaimed in John 3.16 that set everything into motion. Love is the foundational piece that has become the crux of everything that we believe. If we were to take the love out of the Bible, the love out of the gospel, then we really are losing out on everything without love, God doesn't do what he does. If God sent his only son to this world and Jesus Christ dies on the cross and is raised from the dead and love is not the motivation behind it, then it's empty and it's shallow because that's a God who doesn't actually want to have a relationship with us. Likewise, that's why Christ told us, That when he was asked what the two most important commandments were, or what the most important commandment was, Jesus responds and said, there's actually two. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those carry the word of love. And he wraps it up and says, on these things, all the law and the prophets hang Love is what they hang on. The entirety of the Old Testament is built on this foundation of love. You take that out and you're missing something and you're ruining everything. Likewise, in the same way, it is the gospel. In other words, the good news of the death of a perfect savior upon the cross that provides complete forgiveness of sins. If God loved us and wanted to have a relationship with us, and yet Jesus Christ came to this earth, and when he got here, lived a perfect life all the way up to the day of the cross, and when they presented him with the cross, he said, you know what, I don't want to be a part of that, and walked away, then our sins would not be forgiven. We would still be enemies with God, and we would have a big problem right now, right? But that's not what happened. See, Jesus Christ, he did live a perfect life. He did go all the way up to the cross and he did get on the cross. Not only that, but Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died on the cross. And without that death comes no forgiveness of sins. If we remove that, then we're missing a pretty important part. Amen. Thirdly, and this is Paul's point. It is Christ's resurrection that completes the process, showing his power over death, giving us access to eternal life and provides a relationship with our creator. If we have both those first two parts, if God loves the whole world, that he gives his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him, that's great. If Jesus dies on the cross and our sins are covered by the blood of Christ because a perfect savior was sacrificed, awesome. But if he stays dead, we have a real big issue, don't we? Jesus Christ did not stay dead. Without even one of these things, the truth and the power of the gospel is lost. Paul continues in verse 13. But, underline that word. That's a very important word. Anytime you see the word but in the Bible, underline that thing. Because it is worth it. That is good stuff right there. Something big's about to happen. But, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, we just talked about that. And if you take out the resurrection of Christ, then we lose the power and hope of Jesus Christ. One author puts it this way. The resurrection proves that life is stronger than death. If Jesus had died never to rise again, it would have proved that death could take the loveliest and best life that had ever lived and finally break it. The resurrection is the final proof that life is stronger than death. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The Greek word for vain right there means empty. It means shallow, hollow, without substance. Your very faith is in vain. And our preaching is in vain. Here's the deal. A lot of people have come up to me and asked me, Eric, why did you get into ministry? What first caused all that? What, what brought you to this place that this is what you would do? And typically my first response is, well, I was tricked into it by two people. The first is God. And the second was a very attractive young lady that I ended up marrying, but somehow they got together and decided I should be in ministry. And here I am. The real answer goes a little bit more like this. The truth is my desire, my dream was to go and be a filmmaker. I was on a path to make major motion pictures and I got to be honest with you, I was darn good at it too. I got accepted into a private university up in Portland, Oregon called the Art Institute of Portland, Oregon. I was going to be a part of the very first class who had ever done a film program there and I was very excited to go and that was at the age of 17. And so they told me that they were going to have me come up, and I was really excited and making the plans. And then I got a phone call, and they said, hey, we're really excited to have you. Here's what we need from you. We need this information, and then we're also going to need a check to cover your first year. I said, what do you mean, money? (laughs) They're like, yes, we're also going to need money. I said, well, how much is this whole thing that I'm doing here? And they said, well, for the three-year program, it's going to be $90,000. I said, thank you so much for accepting me, but I will not be attending your school. But I really appreciate this letter that I'm going to frame and let everyone else see. And so I didn't end up going to school, and thus began this wandering around for me, much like an Israelite for a little while, not really knowing what was going on, until one fateful day I was cooking a frozen pizza and tater tots as I normally do for lunch, and I got a phone call. It's delicious. Don't judge me. Jeez. Red Baron's where it's at. So I get this phone call from an old friend that I hadn't heard from in a long time. And she calls me up and she says, hey, you're volunteering in your junior high group at the church you grew up at. Correct. And I said, yes. She said, how would you like that to do that for a living? I said, you mean they actually pay people to do this? She said, yeah. And I know this pastor and he's looking for a guy. And you were the first and only person that I thought of. What do you think? Well, one coffee date and one sushi date later, I was a youth pastor in Lincoln. And a few years into it, I realized something. See, I had a dream. I had a dream that I was going to make pictures and I was going to make a lot of money and I was going to make this big difference in the world, making movies that everyone would come and see. That was my dream. But God showed me something even better and God showed me my purpose. And I got to be honest with you. Whenever I get the opportunity, I tell people, listen, you can follow your dream. That's totally your option. God's not going to stop you necessarily from following your dream. But the problem that I have with dreams is this dreams are created by a limited person. A purpose is created by a limitless God. Which would you rather have now that I've done it now that I've seen both sides to an extent, I got to be honest with you. I would much rather pursue my purpose that God has for my life because it was created by a limitless God than I would pursue the dream that me, a limited mortal man created on my own. I can't see the future and he sure can. And now that I'm doing this, I got to be honest with you. This is the greatest thing that I've ever done or could do. Present the word of God on a regular basis to his people. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. And God's created you for a purpose. But what Paul is saying here in this section of scripture is this. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, my very purpose is hollow and shallow and pointless and useless There's no point to me being here if Jesus Christ isn't alive, and not only that, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, if we're not going to partake with him, then there is no point to me continuing this process. I might as well stop now. That's a pretty powerful statement, wouldn't you say? Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. That's a big deal. That phrase there in Greek is katatheo which means against or accusing God of doing something he did not do. Don't ever do that just for reference. Don't do that. Because he continues, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. The Greek word for futile there is without results and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, meaning the dead in Christ have perished. That word perished means lost forever, permanently, cannot be reclaimed, cannot be brought back unless Jesus Christ has resurrected and unless there is resurrection of the dead then those who have died have been lost forever. Powerful stuff. If Christ is not raised, then Paul's preaching is in vain. And it takes the message of the gospel and it rips the life out of it, making its object a dead guy. Do you get that? Without the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ is still in that tomb and the object of our faith is a dead man. Now, i got to be honest with you. Dead men don't really do a whole lot. They're not very powerful or potent, other than in smell. That's about it. There's a game that I like to play. Perhaps some of you have played it. It's called Mafia. And I'm not talking about the one on Facebook. I'm talking about the card game. And it works like this. If you've never played, it is a ton of fun. It works like this. It's a card game. Each card represents a certain thing. The numbers represent townspeople. There's really not a whole lot of effectiveness that you have. But... If you get an ace, you are known as a mafia. If you get a queen, you are known as the angel or the doctor. And if you get a king, you're known as the sheriff. Now, here's how the work, this works. There's a narrator for the game, and they tell everyone to go to sleep. So we all bow our heads and close our eyes, and uh, the narrator says, okay, I need the mafia to wake up. And at that point, those who had an ace open their eyes and quietly look around and make eye contact with each other. narrator says, okay, mafia, choose someone to kill. So they all agree, and they point to one person and choose to remove them from the game. Okay? Now, they don't know it yet, but that's just what happened, and it's awesome. Okay? Then they say, mafia, go to sleep. So they go to sleep, bow their heads, close their eyes. They he says, Angel, wake up. Angel, who do you want to save? And the angel looks around and decides on someone to point. Just so you know, if you play this game with me and I'm the angel, I always point to this guy. All right? (laughs) It's just safer that way. So the angel then saves someone and they go back to sleep. And uh, they have the sheriff wake up. And so the sheriff wakes up and looks around and they point to someone. And the narrator then admits to them whether or not that person is a mafia or not. And he tells the sheriff to go to sleep and then everyone wakes up at the same time. At that point, the narrator tells the story. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, in our little town, there was a horrible accident, and, uh, Connor has, uh, tripped over a noodle of spaghetti, uh, into a, um, a microwave, and, uh, he's dead. So, sorry about that, Connor died. And, uh, and so then everyone's, Connor's dead, he's out of the game, he can't say anything, and we now have to figure out who it was that did it. Now, we played this game with our volunteer staff up at a staff retreat, uh, for the junior high group. And I have never seen a group of Christian volunteers get so heated and angry with one another as I did when we played this game. It was awesome. (laughs) We're going around and people are like, I know you're the murderer. I wouldn't kill anyone. Liar! You're a pastor too. And so we're going around, we're throwing these accusations around. And the funnest part of this game is watching someone after they've been killed and then realize who it was who killed them. Because they're over there and they're on the side of the room just like trying with everything they have not to say anything to help out the village people or the townspeople. They're in there and they almost have to leave the entire house so they don't spill the beans and be like, it was her. Dead men can't talk in this game. And if you're dead, you can't talk. Similarly with Christ, if Christ is dead, then he can't save. Without Christ, we've lost everything. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then guess what? We've lost Christ. Thus the importance of what Paul is saying here. And he continues. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I'll say that again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What an incredible thing to say on Paul's behalf. If what we hope for after this life never comes, then we truly do deserve to be pitied. We truly do. Because why is it that we come here Sunday after Sunday or Saturday night after Saturday night? Why is it that we check our our children into a program where they teach about Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead? Why do we go through these motions if it didn't happen? If what we hope for isn't actually coming, then yeah, we're supposed to be pitied. But praise God, this is not all there is. Amen. Because I know for me, I am in a relationship with the God of heaven and earth. I'm in a relationship with the God who saves the God who brings life and has conquered death. The God who forgives sins and wipes away the past and restores. I'm in a relationship with the God who gives new life and new identity. I am not to be pitied because I have the answer. I have life. I am free from death and I am his. Amen. That is my God. And I pray and I hope that that is your God too. Because if it is, rise up people. We have something to be hopeful for. We have a hope in a God who loves us. He continues. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pause there. And here's what I love about this passage. It shows that God is a God of order and process. And you're about to see one of the most organized gods ever. All right? This is awesome. This is so great. Check this out. First fruits. That word is used twice in this next section of scripture. The first time we're going to pause here and take a look at it. When Paul says first fruits. Paul's thinking in terms of a picture in which every Jew would recognize you see in conjunction with Passover around the time that Jesus Christ was crucified was also a great harvest. The harvest of barley coincided with this whole event. The idea of Passover didn't just symbolize the Israelites exiting out of Egypt, but it also symbolized this great gathering in of barley. And around the same time, what would happen is the Jews would go out and they would have to gather in this barley. Now, the instructions were to bring forth a sheaf of this barley and present it as the first fruits to God. And there was a process that went in with that. The first step is this. You have to gather it from a common field. You can't take it from a special plot. You can't till up special soil. You can't designate a special area with which to take it from. It has to be done from the common area, from the area that you're going to use for everything else and the harvest left to come. So you take that barley and you bring that up. And then what you do is you bring it to the temple. Once it's brought to the temple, what happens is, is at the temple, they lay it down and they begin to thresh it with soft cane rods. The reason they do it with soft ones is so as not to bruise the fruit within this barley and they begin to beat it and separate it and go through it. Then they take all of that after it's been separated and they put it in a large perforated pan. And they stick it in there and then they sift that pan and that barley over a fire so that flames touch every single grain of that barley and no grain goes untouched. After they've done that, they then take it out of the pan and they set it out so that the wind can blow away the chaff. And then with what's left, they take that mill and grind that down into a flour and they present that to God as the first fruits. And that is the process that God gave to his people to go through. Now, get this. The first fruits were a sign of the harvest to come. And the resurrection of Jesus was a sign of the resurrection of all believers, which was to come. Just as the new barley could not be used until the first fruits had been duly offered. So the new harvest of life could not come until Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits. He went through that process for us so that he could be the first fruits presented to God on our behalf, that we might be the harvest yet to come. Did you think about that? We are the harvest that Jesus presented himself as the first fruits for. That's us. Woohoo! We made scripture, guys. That's awesome. We are the harvest that is yet to come. And that is a big deal. He continues in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, there it is again, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here's what we need to understand. All men sin through Adam, and yet all men can be saved Through Jesus Christ. See, the Jews believed that all men literally sinned in Adam. To the Jewish people, it wasn't just something that was said. But they firmly believed and felt a broad connection to one another. The Jewish people believed that one person's actions do not simply affect that one person. But they have rippling results throughout everyone. And we know this to be true, don't we, even in our own lives? You see, we understand for many of us who are parents, and even for those of us who are not yet parents but have parents whose impact has been deep in our lives, we understand that the temptations and the struggles and the sins of our fathers or our mothers have often impacted and affected us. Let me make it practical to you. If dad struggles with the abuse of alcohol... And raises up his child in that environment. It is likely that when little Timmy grows up and becomes a few years older. He too will also struggle with alcohol. And so in turn the process continues. It's a similar idea. You see the Jewish people believed. And it is true that when Adam sinned. It didn't just affect or impact him. But it affected the entire world. You see, if Adam is the direct lineage of the entire world, then when he was going through that sin process in him was the entire lineage of everyone. And when Adam sinned, it impacted everyone past that point. So by one man's sins, we've all sinned. We all are included in the penalty of that one sin because by Adam, the rest of the world was also there. Adam, being the first man, had in essence the entirety of the world in him when he sinned. And when Adam sinned, it affected all of creation and put in us the sin nature which separated him from God and has in turn separated us from God if we are without Christ. So then just as... All of creation was included in one man, in other words, Adam's sin, and have reaped death. So then all those who are included in the second man, that is Jesus Christ, are also included in eternal life. The key here is this. Although we were all included in the original sin, only those who are in Christ will be included in salvation. Understand the section of scripture is not a tag or a proof of universalism. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it did not mean that his blood covered over the entire world just because. You see, you have to do something in order to be included into that salvation, Romans says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And we learn further from Romans five seventeen this. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? In other words, listen. If you want to be saved, you must first accept that free gift of grace by accepting Jesus Christ into your life and into your heart. It doesn't just happen. So don't misunderstand this section of scripture. It's not just saying that there's a universal covering of sin. There's a peace that we have to be responsible for first. He continues. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Did you get all that? Great. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. I read that a few times. Don't worry. Here we go. We usually view God the Father and God the Son as equals, right? That's nice, neat, and tidy, and easy for us to understand. If we're going to believe in the Trinity, then we have to look at it and say, okay, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit, and they work together, and it's equal. Good. And that's how we view it. And then Paul throws this kind of wrench into the system where we're like, oh, that sounds like God's over here, and then, oh, hold on, he's under here, and then Jesus is this way, and then I don't know who's in charge. And we get really panicked about that. Let me tell you what's going on here. Paul is making it look this way, not so that we can think one is above the other or anything like that, but he's putting it into human terms that he can give so that we have the best opportunity to understand the purpose of this scripture. Paul's writing to us and saying, listen, I'm going to explain it as best I can in human terms. It may not make perfect sense, but that's because we're imperfect people, not because he's an imperfect God. So here's what it is. Paul does this on purpose, and the best way we can try to understand it is like this. God gave to Jesus a task to complete. He said conquer sin and death and liberate man. Jesus has defeated death. He has conquered sin and is in the process of salvation and sanctification for the world. That's the process. When the process is fully complete as determined by God, not by us. Don't misunderstand that. We don't determine when the process is complete. God does. It's his process, not ours. Then Christ will hand over the kingdom to the father as a conquering victor or hero would after accomplishing the task given to him and taking the glory of victory as his crown. It's much like a conqueror going out on conquest on behalf of the king saying, I need you to go and accomplish this. And upon accomplishing the task comes, brings back the spoils, the victory, the stories and everything and says, I have done what you have asked. And it is all yours because from the very beginning, it always has been. That's the picture going on here. And that's the relationship between Christ and between God. And I love what Paul says in verse 27. He says this, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, underline that word, that's a big deal, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. This is what I call an idiot clause. Feel free to write that down in the margins next to your Bible. Okay, you have my permission. Idiot clause. This is what this is. Working in uh, middle school, I get this all the time. And when I read this, I was like, I know why you did that. (laughs) You're dealing with idiots (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) So here's what's going on. A lot of times when I work with middle school students, they like to be funny or at least think that they're funny and uh, they'll come in and they'll bring something with them that I asked them to bring. And so, you know, we did the rake and run re- recently and so we asked them to all bring rakes so we could do that. And so they come in with their rakes and it's like uh, a student comes up to me and says, hey Eric, I brought my rake. Where should I put it? I say, oh, just put everything over in the back corner, okay? And then they look back at me and like, huh, everything? Should I put you in the back corner? <laughs> No, don't, no, no, don't put me, just put the rake in the back corner. What Paul is trying to do here is say, listen, when I say that everything was put in subjection under the sun, I'm not talking about God putting himself under the subjection of the sun. That's not what I'm saying. He is accepted from that. He's excluded from that. The point is that when this process is over, God will be all and in all when everything has been completed. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What? Anyone being baptized for the dead currently? That's weird, right? I mean, that's really weird. So... I'm going to do my best to tell you what we're talking about here. I make no promises. So here's what's going on. What we do know is that the people in Corinth had a practice of being baptized for the dead. Well, what does that mean? We'll get into that in a minute. Hang with me. What we also know is this. This was not a command or a biblical teaching. Otherwise, it would have showed up elsewhere in Scripture, and it does not. Don't misunderstand this. Nowhere else in Scripture does this really show up. This is not a command or an instruction that we've been missing out on for a long time. So don't worry about that and get all freaked out like, I haven't been baptizing for the dead. Don't worry, you're fine. It was not a command or a teaching. Number three, baptism is a public display of a relationship with Christ. It's not a method of or a part of what actually saves a person, but rather a display of an already saved person. So we know that they were not baptizing themselves in order to gain salvation on behalf of those who had already died and missed the boat. That's not what they were doing. Don't misunderstand it. Number four, not everyone was part of this. How do we know? Because the words in here says this. Paul uses the word people in here. Paul says right here, otherwise what do people mean by being baptized? In the NIV it replaces people with those. He's saying there's a small group of people that he's acknowledging that he knows are being baptized for the dead. It's just a small group. Not everyone's doing it. Not everyone does it. And Paul doesn't condone it. And he's not saying it's a command. And yet we get really worried about this. So having been here at Bridgeway for a while, I understand that there is a process whenever you get to a very difficult passage and you need to explain it to the congregation. What do you do? You give options. So here are your options. (laughs) I hope you're ready. Option number one is like this. People being baptized in order to fill the ranks of the early church. The thought process behind this is this. The early church was in its very beginnings, and it was being brought up, and as it was being brought up, a lot of the new believers were actually older, and as they began to pass away and die, the thought was that the new believers, upon their baptism, would then be dedicating their baptism to a specific role inside the church. The thought is, is, hey, since we lost Mary Sue, and she was a great organ player last week, we're going to need a new organ player, and here, over here is Mary Beth, and she's okay at the organ, but when we baptize her, maybe we can baptize her into that role of the new church, which is kind of a need. And so they would go through this process, at least that's the thought, that they would baptize the new person for the specific role of the need that was left vacant by someone who had previously died. Okay? Just a thought. Number two, people being baptized literally over the grave of a Christian. This is weird, but here it is. You see, in the original Greek, when you translate that word being baptized, that word for the dead, that word for can also be translated to mean above or upon, all right? And when you do that and you retranslate the verse to say being baptized upon the dead, the thought process is that they would literally take new believers, walk them out to the gravesite of the previously deceased believers and baptize them on top of that grave. Whatever. (laughs) That's weird. But that's the thought is that one argument says that this is what it actually means. It's not for, but it's upon the grave of those who had already died. Number three. People being baptized because of the testimony of a loved one that eventually brought them into a relationship with Christ. Here's what this looks like. Someone was ministering to me and ministering to me and pouring into me and preaching the gospel to me. And um, they ended up passing away. And after they passed away, I came into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When I came into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I realized how much work and effort and time and prayer and and all that went into my salvation. And so when I get baptized, I go and I'm being baptized and I dedicate that to the person who is now dead, who meant so much to my personal journey of faith. Now, that may seem weird, but to be honest with you, we see the same thing every Sunday in National Football League. The truth is every time a football player scores a touchdown, they run into the end zone and oftentimes they'll get down on the knee and they'll do the cross like this and then they'll point up like that. And they do that as a sign of someone who they loved, who meant a lot to them, made a huge impact in their life, that they are then dedicating that moment to because they recognize that if it were not for that person, then they would not be where they are. And they want to do as a symbol the opportunity to give something back in a form of recognition to them. That's the idea behind it, is that people were dedicating their actual baptism to people who had meant a lot in their salvation, who had previously gone on to be with the Lord. Fourth, the word baptized becomes a metaphor for death, like when Christ asked his disciples if they could drink from his cup or be baptized in the same baptism. When you do that, and this is a real stretch of the verse, it's not likely that this is at all what they were talking about, but the idea is that the word baptism is more a metaphor for the idea of death. In other words, uh, why are we going through this process of martyrdom and and death for other people? And the last one is this. People being baptized for those who were believers but died before they had the chance to be baptized. It would be like you have grandma on the deathbed and you're preaching the gospel to her. And then before she has the opportunity to be baptized, she passes on to be with the Lord. And because she did not have the opportunity to be baptized, you then go and are baptized symbolically on her behalf as a representative or a proxy for her. And that's what that looked like. So those are five of the most common ones. Which one's accurate? I don't know. We weren't there. (laughs) I have no idea. And to be honest with you, it really doesn't matter. Here's why. The point in Paul bringing this up wasn't so that we could scratch our heads wondering, well, why did they do that? What does that actually mean? Should I be doing that? No, that wasn't the point. The point was to point back to this. If, the, if Christ has not been raised from the dead and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then why even go through the motions? Why show up to church all the time? Why come here and engage with scripture time after time if it's not real? Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Paul asks. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Two things here. Number one, Paul's battle with the beasts is most likely referring to a fight against people in Ephesus who were so intent on destroying him that it was like fighting against wild beasts. Some people will um, say that Paul had an experience in the arena, much like the gladiators did against some wild animals. There's no scriptural backing to that whatsoever. And in fact, if Paul was a Roman citizen, which he proclaims that he was, there's no way they could have compelled him to fight in an arena anyways. So the likelihood of him having that experience is very slim to none. What's more likely is in Acts, it talks about people who had come up and risen up against him and fought so viciously against him that he felt it was like fighting against wild beasts. And that's what he's referring to. But the last section of this uh, scripture says this. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Ever heard the phrase "yellow"? You only live once is what it stands for. You'll see it all over Facebook. This phrase is all about selfishness. See, if Christ did conquer death, then our lives must be lived for more. Our perspective must be filtered through Christ's resurrection and its eternal implications in everything that we do. That means in our jobs, in our careers, in our families, in our households, with our friends, with our children, with our loved ones. Everything must be filtered through the fact that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and we too will be raised from the dead along with him. That has to change us. That has to impact us. That has to affect us. And that has to have a ripple effect into the world. You only live once is not applicable to us because, praise God, that's not true with Christ. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. My mother had a phrase that she constantly repeated to me when I was growing up. Whenever I was hanging out with people that she believed were of slightly lesser character or moral standard, she would turn to me and say, You know, son, you can't go outside with a white glove and stick it in a puddle of mud and expect the puddle of mud to get all glovey. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. Turns out mom was right. My encouragement to you this evening is this. If you look inside your life and the biggest influences into who you are, how you act and how you interact with other people does not spur you on closer to Jesus Christ, then it's time we remove that thing from our lives. It's time we take a look at the things that have the greatest influence on us and determine whether or not they spur us on to Christ. I'm not saying don't be around other people. I'm not saying don't witness to other people. I'm not saying don't put yourself in a position to reach out to the world who does not know Christ. Don't misunderstand me. What I am saying is that thing that influences you, that thing that makes the biggest impact in your mentality, in your attitude, in your love of others, in the way you treat your family and your children and your friends and your coworkers, if that thing does not spur you on towards Jesus Christ and his love, then it's time we remove that. It's time we rid that out of our lives. We have a message of hope. Christ is raised from the dead. And if he did it, we get it too. And now it's time we share that same truth with others who do not yet know it. And what an opportunity we have with Christmas Remembered right here at our church. What an opportunity to reach out to the community. This last Wednesday, we took the middle school students out. We had a little over 100 of them. We passed out over 500 invites to Christmas Remembered in the local community. And my hope is that as this harvest comes, that we would be ready for it. Russ mentioned the idea of a revival maybe starting here. That is our prayer. That is my personal prayer. Is that we would take this so seriously as to think that there is a harvest coming and we want to be a part of it. Why? Because we have a message of hope. Because our Savior is risen. Be encouraged. Because when all feels as if it's lost when all feels as if everything in this world has hit you in the face and attempts to strip you of your hope, remember that hope does not live and die here on this earth. Our hope has conquered death. Our hope is alive. Our hope saves. Our hope reigns. Our hope redeems. Our hope restores. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and has included us in his resurrection and the hope of eternity with our creator who from the very foundation of the earth has loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, from the very beginning, you have loved us and your love was proven through the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and the shed of his blood for our sins. God, that yet while we were still enemies, you died for us because you loved us. And God, we praise you because we know that the story does not end there. Because, Jesus, three days later, you walked out of that tomb having conquered and defeated death. Jesus, you are alive, and because of that resurrection, we too share in that, and there will be a resurrection of the dead. And, Lord Jesus, we will meet you. Jesus, we will stand before you, and we cannot wait for that day to come. But God, in between now and then, our prayer and our our hope and our request is that our lives and the way that we live it and the way that your resurrection impacts us would then have a rippling impact effect on those that we are around. Jesus, that we would be the light of this world, that we would be the salt of this earth. For your name's sake, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The closing challenge this week is this. We want you this week to examine the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make sure you can explain it, defend it, and believe it with all of your heart. Because on it hangs all of our hope.